You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Vision is a good friend, a very well-known speaker on the entrepreneurial mindset and on company culture, a well-known entrepreneur, investor, philanthropist, technologist working for social good, and CEO of Mind Valley, and the guy behind Awesomeness Fest, which is a biohacking and personal development event for entrepreneurs and creatives and innovators. He's a biohacker of change. So Vision, welcome to the show. Happy to talk with you again. Dave, I am so honored to be part of this show. So in my book, I teach people a codified form of learning and human development. I call it consciousness engineering. And if you want to upgrade your computer or say your smartphone, which is essentially a computer, all you do is you upgrade the hardware. So you might go from the iPhone 5 to the iPhone 6, or you download new apps. You download new apps to give your phone new abilities. Now, in the human consciousness, think of but think of your hardware as your beliefs. Your beliefs are installed in you. That's why I compare it to hardware, because hardware is something you install in a computer. Now, the thing is, most of your beliefs that were installed in you come not from rational choice. Yep. They were indoctrinated in you from authority figures, from media, from parents, from education, from observations you made as an innocent little child. You decide how, how important you are. You decide whether... Um, people love you. You decide your capabilities. You decide your money threshold. You decide your role as a man or a woman. You decide what's masculine or feminine, how you're going to age, what your body is, your feelings about yourself. They're all installed beliefs. Now, the first thing about consciousness engineering is to recognize that these beliefs are not you. They are simply hardware. And just like hardware, you can swap out a good belief, a bad belief, and swap in a good belief. And often when people transform their beliefs, when they have awakening moments, their life changes because your beliefs determine what you're going to experience in the world. So that's one part of it, right? But the second aspect of consciousness engineering is the apps or the software. So while upgrading beliefs is one way to grow, the second way to grow, to hack your mind, is to download new software. And software are your systems, your systems for living. Bulletproof coffee is a system. Certain diets are a system. Tabata exercise or minimum effective dose exercise is a system. You've, made, um, you've built an incredible business teaching people upgraded systems for living from how to eat to how to think to, 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 to um, how to increase your longevity. So really, if you want to grow as a human being, you want to get from human 1.0 to human 2.0, you've got to do two things. Recognize models of reality. Understand what are your models of reality. Swap in good ones. Swap in good ones. Swap out bad ones. And you learn this through studying the greats, reading autobiographies, through modalities like hypnotherapy or meditation where you have awakening moments that shift your beliefs. And secondly, study, learn, and adopt new systems. So I'm constantly learning, studying. That's my bookshelf. It's filled. I have about a thousand books in my home filled with books. And all my books are nonfiction books that teach new systems, new systems for living, everything from eating to dieting. I'm constantly reinventing myself with these new systems. So back to your question, right? Once you understand this framework. Now, when you understand this framework, everything you absorb in the nonfiction world, in the personal growth world, you can absorb it faster because you're instantly spotting, okay, that's a model. You can read a biography like like A Life Decoded by J. Craig Venter and go, oh, wow, okay, so that's how Craig Venter views the world. He's the guy who decoded the human genome. 
And then you can adopt that same model in your head. And you can read books like The Bulletproof Diet and adopt systems directly and inject them into your life. So what I really teach people is to accelerate growth by turning themselves into an upgradable piece of hardware, beliefs and systems. Back to your question. I don't know how intuition works. But the fact is, it doesn't matter. <laughs> intuition could be complete bullshit. It doesn't matter. It's a belief. And the belief changes your view of the world. So maybe it is all luck. But by believing that I have that luck, by believing that when I'm about to call an attorney, right, because there's something in my being that's guiding me on who to call, I am better on the call. In fact, science has proven this. Yeah. In Sean Aker's book, The Happiness Advantage, he talks about a study with salespeople that shows that optimistic salespeople are 55% more effective than negative salespeople. So even if intuition is complete bullshit, by having a belief that I have intuition, that, that my finger is guiding me towards the attorney to call, I make myself more optimistic. I create that 55% boost. See, it's all empirical. Your beliefs don't have to be true. You choose your beliefs and act in accordance with them, and they become true for you. Most animals are like earthenware. When they are born, within a few months, they can hunt, they can walk, they can stand up. And like earthenware, any attempt to mold them or influence them is just like making a tiny scratch. But human animals, human beings are born like molten glass, and thus they can be molded, mm -hmm. they can be shaped like molten glass, they can be turned into whatever you want them to turn into. This is why you can raise a child to be, in the words of Yuval Hariri, Buddhist or Christian, socialist or capitalist, warmonger or peacemaker. All our beliefs can be indoctrinated in us before the age of seven. And it doesn't just come from the people around us. It comes from our own meaning-making machine. So within our minds, we have a meaning-making machine, a pattern recognition system that tries to make sense of the world. But because it still doesn't have all the data it needs, data is nothing more than maturity, we create false meanings. Like in your case, you created that meaning that you were meant to be alone. I created the meaning that because I grew up in a culture in Asia where I look different. I'm not... Asian, Asian, I'm, I'm South Asian, Indian, I look different from everyone else. I went to school and I was a different color and I had Caucasian features like a larger nose and hair on my arms and legs because I'm Northern Indian. And the boys made fun of me. I was called gorilla legs because I had hair on my legs, you know. Um, I was called hook nose because my nose was bigger than most people of East Asian descent. So I grew up and created the meaning that I was ugly. And so my entire life until the age of 22, I'd never actually been with a girl or even been on a date because I grew up thinking I was ugly. And that's how powerful these meaning-making machines can be on our lives. And when you learn to swap this out, and when you learn that your beliefs are not you, instant shifts happen. And so that's, that's really what I'm trying to do with this book. I mean, it's, it's one of many things, but that's why this is so important. Now, just as a segue, right? One of the key things that excites me most is how this influences parents. You've got kids, I've got kids. And one of the people I interview in the book alongside you and Elon Musk and Richard Branson is a parenting psychologist called Shelley Lefko. And Shelley's theories are really interesting. One of the things she says is that your greatest job as a parent is to let your kids be who they want to be. But what you've got to constantly ask yourself in every interaction with your child is, what meaning are they going to take away from this? So you may have a kid, right, who's eating food and he drops his spoon and you go, Billy, don't do that. And a few minutes later, Billy drops his spoon and you're like, Billy, I told you not to do that. Go sit in the corner. 
Now, you think that's correct, and that's the traditional North American parenting style, but it's harmful, it's dangerous, because you've got to ask yourself, what meaning is Billy taking away from this? Perhaps Billy dropped his first spoon by accident, and he was surprised that his mom yelled at him. So he wanted to test his mom's love for him by dropping his fork. He's just an innocent child. He's just experimenting. The mom now gets angry and sends him to a corner. Now in his head, his meaning-making machine goes in overdrive. Mama doesn't trust me. I'm not important. What I say doesn't matter. I'm clumsy. And all of these meanings stack on each other. He grows up with meanings such as, I'm not important. Therefore, I'm not lovable. Therefore, I'm not good enough. Therefore, I'm not as good as other kids. And they build up and they build up and they build up. And all of us go into adulthood with these holes within ourselves, these things which we're waiting for other people to fill in for us. Love, importance, attention. We start craving them because as children, they were, these holes were put into us through innocent parenting mistakes and our own dysfunctional and limited meaning-making machine. You know, that's what excites me, being able to help the world create kids who are whole, who are confident, who don't feel like they have these holes to fill. Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today, we're going to talk about intuitive fasting and getting in touch with real hunger with a guy who really knows what he's talking about. I'm talking about Dr. Will Cole, leading functional medicine nutrition expert and senior clinic director at the Cole Natural Health Centers in Pittsburgh, one of the top 50 functional and integrative doctors in the country. And he looks at chronic disease and things like thyroid and inflammation. He's also known for his book, The Ketotarian. And he has a new book, which is called Intuitive Fasting. It's this idea that fasting doesn't have to be rigid and painful and that there's really good stuff you can do there and that it doesn't have to be the same every day. So Will and I are in, in great agreement on a lot of things, but not everything. And we're going to go deep on fasting for you today. And if you're saying, I'm really tired of fasting, trust me, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff that isn't fasting because he's a functional doctor. I'm going to pick his brain all over the place. Will, welcome to the show. Thank you, my friend. It's, it's truly an honor. I'm excited to be talking. So just straight up intuitive fasting, like it's not the same every day because I'm using my intuition. Like, like yeah. we needed a doctor to step up and say that. Well, you what you do say in your book is flexible. You use yeah. the word flexible throughout. So I think it's the same thing. It's it's not being feeling like you're failing because you aren't doing the same thing. And as you say in the book, if you wake up one day like and you're not feeling like you want to deeper fast, that's okay. You can pivot and have that. Uh, and sometimes anybody, women included, feel like they, well, more is better. And then their, their cycle's thrown off and they're not having the yeah. period or they're losing their hair. And then they think, well, fasting's failing me. Fa fasting is not working for me. Well, it's just how you're using it. And it doesn't mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater and just say, well, it doesn't work for me. It's just like, well, how are you using it? Let's find a way where you can leverage the benefits without falling prey to these potential drawbacks for some people. It, it's funny, uh, fasting, keto, even the vegan diet, which I'm not exactly a big proponent of, um, all of them can be useful for brief periods of time. But yeah. then like, I feel so good. I'm just going to dive in and all of them will trash you over time. It, if I'm working on your intuitive fasting plan, how do I know if a craving is emotional or biological or gut biome or mm -hmm. how would I know if it's a craving or real hunger? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think that, first of all, 
when somebody's really metabolically rigid and they're super sugar burning, they're hangry, they're irritable, they're they're kind of bound by that next snack and that next meal. Like I used to be. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah, right. And so many people are. I mean, there's no shame in that. It's just where they're at at this point. When you start leaning into even light time-restricted feeding windows, light intermittent fasting, even like a 12-12 window, like if they're eating between 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., even that late-night snack will be difficult to stop. Mm-hmm. So at that point, if we're looking at that context, it's going to be the more – that's not a deep fast – and if they're craving, they have plenty of time to eat and be well satiated and nourished. It's not a deep fasting window. But even then, you can know something on that level is going to be the blood sugar hangriness. It's going to be the fact that that kindling's off that fire. And they're in this sort of metabolic purgatory because they aren't able to like get that kindling on the fire as much as they want to. That sugar, uh, that quick fix that they're looking for and they're kind of addicted to. Um, so at that point, you know, it's not really intuition. It's really going to be something that's going to actually move them away from homeostasis. It's going to actually perpetuate imbalance and inflammation levels in the body. Um, so that's one way to, to check in, into it. But I would say something that I advocate throughout the book is what I call metaphysical meals. It's that when you are leaning (laughs) into these like deeper intermittent fasting windows is to, really use that time of when you would normally have breakfast, lunch, and dinner or whatever fast that you're doing. If you're like doing two meals a day, when you normally would have that meal that you're not having that meal to use that as a time to go inward, to actually do a mindfulness practice. And I give some examples in the book, whether that's journaling or a meditation practice or breathing exercise or any one of these things for us going out in nature and checking in with your self. So you could start to create that awareness of checking in with your body, check in with your cravings, check in Mm. with your, your energy levels, check in with your digestion to know and have the awareness. And that's the intuition that's growing. That's starting to be able to shine through the physiological imbalances and noise in the body. So that's, that's what I would say. Is that an easy thing to do all the time? Absolutely not. It's going to take practice. And that's what we're all doing. We're all practicing these things and we're all getting stronger as we practice. Um, and, and mindfulness and awareness and, it, and getting in touch with the intuition is no, ex- no exception to that. Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's guest is Panash Desai. He's a best-selling author. Uh, people call him a thought leader, whatever that is. And a business and life catalyst. You're going, all right, Dave. We got someone who's a little bit on the, the the softer side of things, not a hardcore biochemist. And that's good because I love conversations like this because you can learn a lot there. And he's kind of a big deal though because he's been on Oprah on her Super Soul Sunday show. He's worked alongside Deepak Chopra who was just on the show. And he works with Reverend Michael Beckwith uh, as well. So this is uh, one of today's modern leaders in personal development which is way cooler than being called a thought leader, which is the bio that he sent me. And Panache's new book is called You Are Enough, Revealing the Soul to Discover Your Power, Potential, and Possibility. How do you know uh, who you are? In, in just step one of, of You Are Enough, uh, 
when you have all these belief systems, whether you know, it's because that's the behavior you're exhibiting or because it's a programming that you got when you were young, how do you know what's you? So again, the, when we're being ourselves, it's that core foundation of feeling peaceful, right? So everything else above and beyond that is dissonant to who we authentically are. So basically, suffering is completely inauthentic. It's completely inauthentic. It requires so much energy to suffer, right? It requires no energy at all to just simply be who we are, which is peaceful. So I think one of the things that's been missing in the transformational framework at large is that we don't have a context of the feeling level for who we are, right? We have all this intellectual framework and understanding and this cognitive capacity to talk about ourselves all day long from all different perspectives. But because we don't know what authenticity actually feels like, we don't have a point to return to on demand. And because we don't have a point to return to on demand, we can't then source our choices and decisions from that place. But the first step for me is to always become very acutely aware of who we've become and to have so much empathy and compassion for who we've become, because that is a product of a, of a system and a structure that has fundamentally judged and criticized and marginalized who you are in order to have you fit into a world, right, that quite honestly doesn't work for the majority of us anyway. And so when we first kind of wake up, we have to come back to this place of compassion and empathy for ourselves because we have to start from there, right? Where we start from and how we move on from that place of discovery is how we will evolve. And I think the bigger issue for that individual is that, you know, clearly in that situation, a lot of self-judgment, a lot of self-criticism, a lot of self-hatred, right? That person was never embraced, was never held, was never enough. That person was never modeled what love was in any kind of demonstrable way. And so again, you know, in unpacking that, that particular example, you know, giving someone a, a real practical feeling point of, okay, this is who you are. This is what you feel like when you're being yourself. And all of these other things are just fluctuations that are happening at the level of the mind, the level of emotion. That at least gives you a place to start. But this journey of acceptance is a journey of broadening our inclusivity toward ourselves, right? So in that moment, if we're 26 we're on that sofa and we fundamentally don't love ourselves and hate ourselves completely, then we at least have to accept where we are in that moment in order for any change or any transformation or the possibility of any change or transformation to even be introduced to that individual. In the absence of that acceptance, no change or no transformation is possible on any level of life or living. Okay, so we start accepting... Uh, some of those things, uh, but we're we're doing it now based on the feeling. Oh, that makes me feel peaceful. That's probably really me. Everything else is probably some other programming. How do you identify that feeling of peace for the first time? So the the feeling of peace when I experienced it for the first time was just this overwhelming sense of calm and well being that I just had inside of me for no reason. Uh, it wasn't the high that you have on partways, you like whatever brand of THC you're currently imbibing, where you're just shot out of a cannon. And, uh, and then you have this kind of momentary, expansive, out-of-body experience in time. And then all of a sudden, you have to come back to the reality that is your life, right? So every other avenue and means of coming to that piece is unsustainable long-term. You know, I, I think sex is a great example because there's a moment where that basic primal need is fulfilled. And as a result of the filling of that need, we do have an entry point into that piece and into that moment of, okay, I'm, 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 I'm at peace here, Right. I'm, I'm, I'm able to relax here, right? But again, it's momentary. So through all external mediums and phenomenon and forms, that point of connection is elusive. You know, we can't sustain it, right? We have to come back to what's naturally available inside. You know, our biology, our mind, who we are at the feeling level is the ultimate technology. We're just not using it. 
You know, we're not using what we have. And that's because we haven't been trained to use it, right? We haven't, nobody's ever sat us down and said, hey, it's okay to accept your emotions. It's okay to, to, to be with what's going on in your mind, but you don't have to react to it. It's okay to be with what's happening at level of belief, but you don't have to react to it. Your body is this wonderful vessel or avatar that you have to navigate this simulation. And it's going to, and, and you have the capacity through, through your uh, feeling state to shift your biology in any way that you choose to. You can literally shift your genetic expression through how you feel about yourself in every moment and the dominant feeling that you're holding. And so nobody's teaching this stuff, right? And spirituality, really, for me, the foundation of it is the mastery of, of, of who we are as human beings, right? How do we navigate emotions? How do we navigate the mind? How do we navigate the body? Once we've got that, all of this external material success and performance, all of that stuff, it becomes so much easier because we no longer have to overcome the obstacle that is ourselves, right? We no longer have to overcome the obstacle that is our, is our emotions. We no longer have to overcome the obstacle that is our mind. We no longer have to overcome the obstacle that is our body. So at that point, once we've mastered how to navigate all of this, right, that we are at the level of our humanity through all of these wonderful wisdom traditions that we have access to, that really knew the truth of who we are. At that point, all of these other extensions become become easier, become way easier to navigate. The first time that you achieved that that feeling of of peace that you're describing, how old were you? I was um, about 23 or 24, and I had always had I had always had this very interesting relationship with God because I was obviously born into an Indian family that was very spiritual. Uh, on the weekends, we'd go see saints and sages and gurus and teachers because it's what you do when you're Indian. And then you line up after the program for about three hours and they bop you on the head with a peacock feather. And my favorite part was they'd give you some kind of Indian sweet that was, had way too much sugar in it. And so I kind of justified it by the fact that I was going to get bopped on the head and get a sweet. And every time that we would go to see one of these incredible beings, they would say to me, thank you for incarnating. We've been waiting for you. And I just thought that, that was the weirdest thing ever. And I was experiencing things happening around me that I couldn't explain. And so I had this relationship with spirituality in my early childhood that was deeply immersive in my formative years. So basically, that's kind of the framework that I was conditioned into, was this framework of presence, transcendence, and peace. Like the meditation room was my foundational essence. When I got older, I subsequently moved away from that and uh, tried to fit in, tried to belong, got involved in this whole notion of not being enough, got involved in the music scene in London. And a lot of my friends at the time were some of London's most wanted. And uh, they were in the import, export and distribution business on a whole scale level. And uh, and I was in music. And so all of a sudden, music came into my life. I turned on the FM dial one day and uh, pirate radio was a big deal in the UK at that time. So we were listening to drum and bass and garage. And I ended up being an MC on a pirate radio station and uh, started performing at raves and got involved in music. And subsequently got to a point beyond that where my journey took me back to spirituality. And, and the journey that took me back to spirituality specifically was one night I was in a, a bar. Um, I was drinking while Indian in a bar where nobody else was Indian. And uh, three people took exception to that. I had an altercation. The bouncers pulled me off and uh, pulled me out. And then subsequently that night, I was embarrassed to go home because I didn't want to have to have that conversation with my mom and dad. And so I went to an after-hours club in Brixton, uh, South London, uh, and all the all the great music at that point was in all the after-hours clubs. And before we'd gotten there, there'd been a shooting, and we didn't know. And we walked into the club. Next thing, there's an altercation. Guns come out. And I'm like, okay. And then we ended up in like a five to seven-hour standoff uh, with the Metropolitan Police Department SWAT team because they wouldn't come in because there were guns in the premises. 
And so they escorted everybody out one by one, videotaped everybody. Meanwhile, my parents were watching this on television because it was at this point a major news event all throughout London. And uh, that night when I got back and I got home, it was like something had just completed itself. Like I was just like, you know what? I'm done. Like I get it. Like I'm done. Like I'm done with whatever this is. And I sat down with my mom and I said, mom, I've got to go live like a month for six months. I said, I've got to get back to the spirituality of my youth. You know, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not happy and living a lie. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in this situation that, you know, isn't really who I am. And that's what happened. I went back to an ashram, a residential retreat center, upstate New York, lived a very simple life, shaved my head and uh, lived a monastic life for six months. And there was a moment in that once I had unwound all of the kind of emotional nonsense that I'd accumulated, all of the mental garbage that had been superimposed over me, all of the belief systems that I've absorbed, there was a moment where I just experienced this profound stillness. And I understood that this stillness is this peace, right, that passes all understanding. It's this peace that people talk about in every tradition. And that for me was the first moment. When everything first began to kind of happen for me was I was in Venice, California, 2002, 2003. So it's like a year or two after. And I said, all right, God, whatever you are, like I need to experience what you are, because there's a lot of things that I can't reconcile that are being done in your name. So if I am indeed here to be a messenger, I need to experience what you are. And so literally New Year's Eve, 2002, 2003, I'm sitting on my couch in Venice, California, and I'm experiencing again wave after wave of just energy and emotion moving through me short lifetime's worth. And I get to this point, Dave, where everything just becomes golden light. Everything becomes this golden, luminous presence. It's the most beautiful feeling and the most beautiful experience you could ever have. And it's a love that's beyond definition. Like any, any kind of word that I use to describe what this love is cheapens the experience of this love. And that's why when Oprah asked me to define God, I couldn't because any definition that we put on infinity inherently becomes a limitation. And from that moment, that was a further awakening of who I was. It was a further establishing of this. After that, I was in a state of bliss for about three to six months, just in complete bliss. And everything was like this beautiful golden light was just everywhere and everything. And I was beginning to see through all of the layers of separation, all of the layers of fear, all of the layers of survival. I was able to see clearly what this is about. And at its foundational essence, what this is about is love. It's about that love. It's about reconnecting to that love, living from that place, and empowering people to remember that no matter what they've done, no matter how they've lived, no matter what they've gone through in their lives, that this love, beyond anything that they they could ever get from outside of them, is available to them within them. And the degree to which they're able to undergo this transformation is the degree to which they're able to reconnect with Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What Don's here to talk about is his more effective ways of dealing with trauma using neuroscience, using proprietary cutting edge techniques that he's developed. Because here's the deal. No one wants to spend 40 years sitting in a cave dealing with their trauma because we actually have stuff to do in the world. Uh, Don, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. How do you... How do you define the word trauma? Like, like I, I've used it in in episodes since the beginning. I've interviewed different experts on trauma, but they all kind of have a different way of describing it. And the reason I'm asking, when I started this path, look, I'm an engineer. Mm-hmm. 
there's no reason for me to be traumatized, therefore I'm not traumatized. Right. If there's no reason for me to be afraid, therefore I'm not afraid. You know, hyper-rational sort of stuff. And when someone said you're traumatized, I'm like, have I been in a car accident? I'm not traumatized. So what is trauma the way you're talking about it? Trauma is a glitch. It's an error message. So the way I always explain it is if you think about something that happened to you 10 years ago and you feel fear or anger, you feel an emotion, that's affecting you. So trauma to me is if, you know, some people have experienced severe trauma and they're higher functioning. It's what I call your own personal atmospheric conditions. So if my atmospheric conditions were much clearer growing up, and then I get into some trauma like I ex experienced, I'm able to deal with that better because I don't have this flood of data coming in. So to me, it's all in perspective. So my wife, anytime something would go wrong, she, her nervous system would be totally dysregulated because she had so many things that her mind was thinking about. I could have something happen and I could deal with it better because my system had learned how to regulate and I could stay present easier. So I think it's all relative depending on the individual and what they've experienced, especially in childhood. So now talk to me about what you do at the Inspired Performance Institute in order to, to clear a glitch. So we had an example from your wife and you, you would say, I didn't like something. And she'd say, why are you mad at me? Like, I'm not mad. I just, you know, I wanted my salad with less dressing, you know, like, like it, it, it doesn't correspond here. What, um, what's your, what's your technique? Well, well basically what I, what I did, and that's the reason we called it a performance program as opposed yeah. to trauma therapy, because nobody wants to go through trauma therapy. Because let's face it, if you have trauma, you probably don't know it. Right. I mean, the vast majority of people um, who will insist that they have nothing, right? <laughs> they do. <laughs> yep. And my okay. wife was high functioning. So if you had met her, she didn't get into addiction or anything. If you had yeah. met her, she's great woman, great wife, great mother, taking care of her kids, but she had nightmares constantly. Yeah. And she was living with that. So I could see that and I could see how it was affecting her, but she presented so well. And, and I was sworn to secrecy. Nobody yeah. could know what happened to her as a child because she kept saying, this is a reflection on my family, on who I am. There's a shame component. Shame trauma. component. And I kept okay. saying, no, there isn't, right? I loved you. I married you. It had nothing to right. do with the way I saw you. Right. But that's not the way she thought. Interesting. And now she can tell, talk about it to anybody. Okay, so she lost the shame over it entirely. Yes. Um, which, which is such a powerful thing to be able to just say. Um, it's so the same I, thing with addiction. What I, I, I say the same thing is that we're, we're treating it wrong. We're shaming them. We're guilting them. Right. As opposed to saying, what I say to them is, I understand why you got into addiction. Is it because you had emotional pain? You found a resource that stopped the pain temporarily. And because you repeated it, you built a code. How does your, your tip method from your institute how does it differ from something like EMDR, this eye movement dissociative response that uh, some therapists are using? I've talked about it in a few episodes before. Yep, EMDR works if it's you know done by the right practitioner, but it just takes a lot longer. It takes okay. So the results you're seeing one four hour session. Like right. how many traumas do you clear per hour? Three. Three, okay. No, not even per hour, just oh. three altogether. Okay, and so you're saying just three is enough for most people to have a profound difference in their performance. Yes, because what happens is is that when they go to sleep at night, the brain goes into that theta brainwave yeah. state and starts processing what they just learned. Mm -hmm. So I worked with a lady who had really bad sexual abuse as a child. We cleared three traumas, and she said to me, she said, she said we're going to be here all night because I got a lot of these. I said, we're not going to do any more. Your mind's going to process everything else. The mind and body are designed to heal. It's mm -hmm. going to, once it got this process down, it's going to apply it. 
So I ran into her about a month later at a store, and she ran over to me, and she says, I got to tell you something. She says, there's no question that those traumas we worked on were clear. I could think about them. I wasn't feeling the emotion. She says, but when you told me my mind would clear the others, she says, I didn't believe you. She says, but I was at Universal Studios on the weekend with my daughter and my husband, and I was riding on the escalator, and I was looking over the railing. And she says, my daughter said, Mom, look at what you're doing. And she says, I never told you I had a fear of heights. We never discussed it, and it's gone. Wow. I could go up to the top of the escalator and look and watch people walking underneath the bridge. She says, that was impossible before. So whatever event created that also cleared right when it learned that process. The whole premise that we start off with our whole program is that there's nothing wrong with you. Yep. And there's nothing wrong with your mind. Yep. Your mind works perfectly fine. What's been interfering with it, performing at its highest level? And my experience has been, it's been events and experiences yeah. that your mind filters through. So if I had a filter and I pour water through the filter, the water's going to come out clear. Mm-hmm. But if I stuff it full of mud and I pour water through it, it's going to come out muddy. There was nothing ever wrong with the water. Right. It's just filtering through, which I call atmospheric conditions. So my wife's atmospheric conditions were dark and stormy, so her thoughts are going to be filtering through it. Her thoughts are not going to be clear. That statement that there's nothing wrong with you is a really big thing. Uh, I had become super convinced like there's something wrong with me uh, <laughs> because like I, I want to do certain things and, and I'm just, it doesn't work. And it was you know, Dr. Amon's work that was like, oh, there's nothing wrong with me. However, I have a hardware problem, like like there's something wrong with my brain. And I did a bunch of transpersonal psychology work and you know, work on my own traumas. I'm like, oh, okay, there's a bunch of things that are you know, occluding the real me that are in the way, that, that filtering analogy, or you know, you you can be a you know, bright shining light, but you know, if if there's you know, dead bugs all over your windshield, it's not going to come out. Yep. And whatever the metaphor is, just those words, you know, there's nothing wrong with you, even if you're doing stuff that you're ashamed of or that you don't want to be doing, there's a reason for it. I think that's incredibly liberating. And that's how I start with the whole program is I say, you couldn't have done it any other way based on the way your mind produces thoughts. So if your mind is filtering through all this garbage to come up with a thought, it couldn't have come up with a different thought. And so once we clear that filter out, it's going to change the thought process. Okay. So one of the things I do is we set a target. And what I say is my target for you is when you leave here today, your mind's going to be updated, rebooted, refreshed, and adjusted, which will now allow it to operate clear, calm, at peace, with understanding, which then produces thoughts that are beneficial, appealing, and possible. And so that's my intention and target for them when they come in. And so... When their mind makes those updates, it changes its operations, which changes its product. So people come in, they what they go to Florida, mm-hmm. uh, and they spend one four-hour session with you. Correct. They sleep at a hotel, they fly home. Then they s- listen to a series of audios each day for about 28 days. Okay. And we have 21 days of what we call walking out behaviors, because we're dealing with two memory systems. We're dealing with the implicit memory, the way we store all the details and data And then we're dealing with the procedural memory, which is what we learn through repetition, the same as the animal brain. So that memory builds codes. And that's what I say addiction is. Addiction is if you had had a lady come in who had been on heroin, and she said to me, I have self-destructive behavior. And I said, really, why would you think you're self-destructive? She said, well, I'm sticking a needle in my arm with heroin. Don't you think that's self-destructive? I said, no, I think you're trying to feel better. And I bet you when you stuck the needle in your arm, you felt better. So the, the substance yeah. you were using was destructive, but you're not. And because you repeated it, your subconscious mind doesn't know the difference between good or bad or right or wrong. It's literal. 
Right. So because you repeated it, your mind said, this must be important for our survival, and it built a survival code connected up to the substance. That's why it's so hard to stop. And if you're continuing to loop in the trauma, your mind's going to continue to activate that code. So we first work on the implicit memory to break down the trauma that stops looping. Then we want to start building a new code. And we're getting a lot of success with addiction because of it. What do you think causes addiction? I think it's pain originally. Okay. And, and that they want to stop the pain. pain. Emotional or okay. could be physical. All right. So um, if they're in emotional pain and then every time they think about it or in, a, in an environment that's keeping them in that active loop, they want to feel better. So the mind and the body, right, are, are constantly reaching homeostasis. So if we can take a drug and it can stop our mind from feeling the pain, that makes perfect sense. So I say to people, the reason people use drugs and alcohol is because it works. <laughs> right? They weren't intentionally trying to go out to be an addict, but their mind built the code. And so once we get their mind to stop looping through the trauma— then all we have to do is get the mind to understand that that code. So I say, if you walk every day two miles to get food, right? But there's snipers and landmines everywhere you're walking and trying to get the food, but you get there and back every day. And then somebody says, why are you going that route? There's a hundred yards down the road. There's a big supermarket, well-led. It's really safe. Your mind won't go there instantly because it doesn't know that route. So you're going to have to show that route every day and repeat it and go down one yard, 10 yards, 20 yards. Okay. And what I say is repetition is like research for the brain. You've proven to it that this is a better code. And, and that's why you have these audio files as yes. part of your program. What's going on? Are you using NLP? Are you using binaural beats? Uh, binaural beats. Okay. The We have tombla music. We have flutes. We have wind chimes. All that as I'm talking and taking them through. So it's like a hypnotic sort of a experience. Yeah, very meditation, very quiet, peaceful, okay. keeping them in alpha brainwave state. And basically, then they answer five questions every day along with the audios. The audios, the questions are designed to start saying, is this the behavior you want? Is this who you are, right? And so it's questioning. Because when we get into a habit and a behavior, our mind stops thinking anymore. We're just operating. So we want to challenge the operational system each day with the questions as you're listening to the audios and then start thinking about new ways of doing things. Okay. And so people are spending a one four hour in person thing. Does it work over Skype? You ever do it over Skype? People yeah. do it from home. Yeah, I've done it on yeah Skype, Zoom. We also have an online version of it okay. that they can do online. And I've done groups. So I did a. Do you know Shanda Sumter? Uh, um, she's out of San Diego. I've heard of her, but I don't think we've. I don't think we've met. I think she's in the Genius Network. Okay, then, okay, then we've we've probably connected. Probably, I've yeah. met everyone in Genius Network at least once, but. Oh, it's a big group. It's a big group. Yeah, so I went to her, this is a few months ago, and she had 140 people. I took the whole group of 140 people through the session. Wow. And people just said it was transformational. We, tr we cleared trauma. So what I did is I would bring one person up. I would do a demonstration with that one person. And there's something really exciting about a group because there's an energy. When you start watching oh, yeah. people transform right in front of you and, and clearing a trauma, then I take the group through the same technique then I bring somebody else up. We do another demonstration of another technique. We got phenomenal response. People absolutely loved it. Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED 
that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. I'm really excited about today's interview. Uh, Today's guest is Dr. Ted Achacoso. And I'm really excited to talk with him because he's a geek from artificial intelligence land who turned into an anti-aging guy. We're talking about being a leader in fields like medical informatics, artificial intelligence, quantitative trading, and most interestingly, maybe, is the mathematics of consciousness. Ted, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for having me. Now, you are, I think the technical term is a crazy smart guy because you've been quoted as saying that on bad days, your IQ is 186 and on good days, it's 210. True? Yes, true. It's more measured like this. At the time that it was measured, there were only 4 billion people on earth and it was one in 1 billion, right? So now that there are 8 billion, I presume that there's eight in there's there's eight now if it's a one in a billion so so you're you're, you're less cool than you used to be i uh, so i'm less cool than i used to be i've been <laughs> diluted <laughs> now I, I wanted to start there not so that uh you know you, you could say I'm, I'm super smart although anyone who hears this interview is going to figure that out pretty quickly i was fascinated just to hear that you've paid enough attention to that to say wow i have like a 20 point swing just about uh, in your case, I think a little bit more than 20 points, just based on how am I doing biologically right now? Uh, yes. and, and so just to be able to talk about that's important for people listening. Yeah, no, I think my variance is closer to schizophrenia. I'm kidding. I- <laughs> <laughs> it, it's just positive schizophrenia. That, that's totally good. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things I noticed, Dave, in terms of, of the variance is that on, on days of low cognitive performance, um, for me, is my incapacity to integrate a lot of things together. And that yeah. I begin to compartmentalize a lot of things, which is what happens in schizophrenia, right? You, you compartmentalize a lot of things. And when you are on high-functioning states, you're able to integrate a lot of things. In fact, you're able to step away from what your ego wants to do. You observe the ego and what the ego wants to do, and you actually observe all the other variables uh, in, in the situation that you're assessing at hand, whether it be a client or a patient or a situation, a business situation you have to deal with, a computer problem, a mathematical problem, then one of the one of the things that was so interesting when us being taught, you know, um, heavy uh, geometry and biomathematics uh, by my mentor, who was the pioneer in in medical informatics globally, Bill Yamamoto, he said, I was working on an equation and, you know, I couldn't remove this constant in there because it was a constant right and and then he looks at me and said you know ted you know if murder is part of the solution don't take it off the table (laughs) (laughs) wow that's kind of dark and it was dark but i saw his point and he was referring to a mathematical equation so when i took away the constant i found my solution see that kind of thinking comes to you you know, when you're not compartmentalized, right. when you're when you're, when you're functioning at 100 percent, you see that there is nothing in there 
that you have held sacred that's actually indispensable and suddenly your mind is able to actu actually find other solutions for it that not only makes sense but it becomes useful in the long run right if if someone whether they're a medical practitioner listening or uh, uh, someone who's just interested in learning more how would you go about measuring your metabolome like like what are the tests that you look at to help understand what's going on in a patient uh, currently the tests i use are uh, made by genova you know they have a uh, the nutrival which is from urine and they test your levels of vitamins minerals and so on you could get the plasma amino acid levels also uh, and then i also so take um, the GIFX, which is stool, to see whether or not you have any leaky gut, uh, and then to see the, the profile of your gut bacteria and what metabolites they're actually throwing inside your body, uh, your levels of short-chain fatty acids, and, and, and so on. Uh, and then I also take um, uh, the gut sensitivity uh, testing. And I, uh, you know, to see what foods can be removed in order to decrease your molecular inflammation. And I know there are a lot of, of uh, pros and cons about doing this, but you know, Dave, it's the best that we have right now and it works. So why not use it? Let's be pragmatic about it. You know, let's not fight about the tests. If they work, you know, if there, there's an improvement in the future, sure, uh, the great improvement. So you, I take a look at those levels and then, um, you know, uh, you, uh, if there's a borderline toxicity, you take it out. If there's a, a border, uh, if there's a, a subtle toxicity, take it out. Borderline deficiency, you put it in. And remember, uh, I'm looking at values. The, the normal quote-unquote values are not relevant to us. We use optimal values. Optimal values are those found at age 21 to 30. And I use 30 because at 30, testosterone levels in men drop. And that's why <laughs> that's what yeah. I use as my. I gauge uh, 21 to 30. Um, uh, but, but it was interesting, Dave, um, uh, last, uh, uh, two or three years ago, there was a 60,000 cohort uh, uh, epidemiologic study that was presented in Europe where they found out that even men uh, aged 21 to 30 were experiencing erectile dysfunction from endocrine disruptor chemicals, you know, the, the chemicals found in the environment that disturbs their uh, endocrine systems or hormone systems causing a drop in testosterone. So uh, th that was a very uh, interesting study. Then uh, then after that, you know, after comparing, then you try to move the entire network. And here's my network background. I tried to move the entire network of hormones and nutrients over to when you were 21 to 30. Now that's the science of it. You cannot just move one because when you touch one, the rest of the network will move, right? And I call that network-wide range shifting. You know, you shift the entire network. Um, the, the, the mistake that we made, even anti-aging medicine, for example, made uh, many years ago, is that they gave hormones singly. You give estrogen unopposed, of course, you'll get breast cancer. You'll give you know, testosterone unopposed, you'll get all sorts of uh, side effects. You have to move the entire network because all of them balance out each other uh, inside the body. Uh, so you have to move the entire network. Now, that's the science. But the art of it is if the patient already starts feeling well and says, I am good at this level, then you stop at that level temporarily until you remeasure. You know, uh, you, you, for the first year, it's recommended that you get measured every three months, second year, every six months thereafter. And this is how you invest in yourself. You know, you're investing in your health uh, by, by doing this because no illness medicine doctor is going to do this for you. If someone came to you tomorrow and said, hey, I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being, what three pieces of advice would you have for them? Okay, Dave, 
I'm prepared for this question. (laughs) (laughs) I always am asked, so Dr. Ted, how do you live your life? And I say, I live my life like a video game. And a video game has three components, life, health, and time. Life, I only have one of them. So, you know, in your video game, you can have as many lives, but this is the only life we have. So I don't place myself at unnecessary risk. True, I'll go bungee jumping, I'll go skydiving, but I'll never, I'm never going to chase that guy who just cut me off the road because humans are uncertainly dangerous. So <laughs> <laughs> don't get killed by a human, got it? <laughs> so, um, in fact, there's a saying, you, you cannot get killed by ghosts, but you can get killed by a human. So uh, the, um, the, the second is health. You know, in Pac-Man, where you eat those cherries, etc., so you get stronger and healthier. So, um, you know, be healthy. Uh, you know, uh, do things that will make you healthy. You provide a lot of advice of, uh, of being healthy. And one of the things, the most difficult things that was asked of me is how does health optimization medicine make you spiritually healthy, right? And this was asked of me by a psychiatrist, because spirituality is is a component of healing. And I said, you know, that's really very simple, right? The DMT is the spirit molecule, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, uh, Lack of spirituality is called the DMT deficiency syndrome. (laughs) (laughs) Give DMT and the ball starts rolling. But anyway, not only your physical, emotional, and mental health, but also your spiritual health and your energetic health, and then time. And uh, I alluded to this earlier. How do you want to spend your time? You know, and there are two things that I ask myself: is what's worth doing in one's lifetime, and uh, as a person. And for me, that's the development of a meta self that observes your ego all the time, so you can you know when to engage and not to engage in particular situations. And that's a continuing practice. And the second is what's worth doing in the service of the planet Earth, other people, other creatures. You know, that's not just you. Uh, you know, you, you belong to an entire network of, uh, of uh, beings here on Earth. And we all just currently have one planet that we live in. And, and so what's worth doing in the service of that, of, of, of uh, other people, creatures and the planet? You know, so if you decide what kind of time you want to spend and spend it in high quality, then do that. Do that thing that you're, you love and you're passionate about. And, but in scientific parlance, Dave, um, I would like to translate that to something that's more very simple. Don't fuck with my time and I won't fuck with yours. So, <laughs> <laughs> so life, health, and time. My, my life as a video game. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. 
This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.